Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This is the first full day that I've spent now in Lithuania because last night at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock we landed. It was delayed of course because the airport situation in the UK is atrocious and the queues are gigantic. But finally we got here 11.30 last night just finished doing the supermarket shop, having our first coffee, and tomorrow morning I go and pick up, oh, I'm so excited about this, the Royal Enfield Classic 350. It's a bike I've wanted to test for so long after. One of the, the in my mind, one of the best bikes, take everything into account, that I've ever tried, the Royal Enfield Meteor, but this is it dressed up in a slightly fancier package. It's 600 pounds more, but it is a more fancy package with all of the chrome, so I can't wait to see what that's like. But I'll leave that aside for now because I haven't even seen it yet. So I'm off to pick it up on the other side of Vilnius, which is the capital of Lithuania, tomorrow. Right. Is this, is this amazing? Because in my mind it is. I've now put on 13, one, three, 13,000 miles on my set of Michelin Road Classic tires, and there's still plenty of tread left. Seems like a lot of mileage for a set of motorcycle tires. I'm really impressed with that. Yes, probably my riding is pretty slow and pathetic. Yes, the Bonneville's power is fairly slow and pathetic, but still, that's pretty good. I remember on my old Triumph Speed Triple, I'm sure, God, does my memory fail me? I'm sure I was only getting about uh, five or 6,000 miles from a set. Maybe I'm wrong. Let me know if, if you've had some massive mileage on your bike tires, because that seems really good. And it, it, it looks like there's about 4,000 miles left in them. It's a rough guess, but I'm amazed by that. Okay, have a listen to this. Bit of news. This is really a, a sign of things would you say moving forward, whatever way you want to look at it, but it's, it's definitely uh, a fairly big evolutionary step now that's going on with regards to electronic aids and also us being able to be monitored by the government. This is from July the 6th, which is just, I think it's about the 12th today, six days ago, new cars must be fitted with speed limiters. Let me get this article up. This is from the RAC, and this is a big, big change because six days ago, every single new vehicle registered in the EU has to be fitted legally with something called an ISA. To the best of my knowledge, I think that's an independent safety assistant, something like that. And basically what it means is if you're going over the speed limit. It will warn you that you're going over the speed limit. And from the best of my knowledge, what I can see here, it will actually slow the vehicle down so you get back into a legal speed. So you could be going along on the motorway at 90 miles an hour. It will then pick up, oh, hold on, the speed limit's 70 miles an hour. It will give you a warning, whether that's a vibration or an audio warning with an annoying beeping going on. And I think, I think it will actually physically slow the vehicle down. This is a gigantic step in 
in vehicles and the government taking over from our, you know, our own autonomy, our own judgment of, of what is right. But here's an interesting thing on top of this. It says here from the RAC website, I'll just see if I can find the exact wording, otherwise I'll, I'll just tell you what, uh, what my memory tells me. Um, okay, so, however, here we go, I found it. However, the technology can be overridden at the start of every journey when the car is first turned on. If this isn't done, then the ISA automatically kicks in. So, if you decide at the beginning of each journey that you don't want this safety feature to be turned on, you, you have to do some kind of sequence and it turns off. But I don't really see the point in that. Surely if it's a safety device, it would be, you wouldn't have a, a way to turn it off before you actually head off on your journey because the people who want to speed, they will of course just turn it off at the start of every journey. If you're not legally obliged, to have it on, I don't understand why people would ever, ever voluntarily put it on because everyone knows when they're speeding. You know, you know when you're doing 85 miles an hour in a 70 zone, surely. I don't really see how that works then. I would actually understand it more if you can't turn it off because the aim of the EU, and it's a nice aim, it's a good aim, is to reduce road collisions by 30% and to reduce deaths by 20%. It's also, and I'm quoting here, part of the EU's goal to have zero road deaths by 2050. And that is brilliant. Um, it's amazing that everything's getting safer, but I don't understand the bit where you can choose if you have the device on or off at the start of the journey. I don't get that at all. If you're looking at it from a cynical point of view, it's an interesting point because there'll be a lot of people who are very uneasy about this because this is a first very big step towards the state, whichever EU state you're in, towards the state actually being able to to monitor and to judge how you're driving. And they will take that into account, of course, if you're in, in any collisions. And it's not a big step now towards, you know, towards you driving along at 85, 85 miles an hour, for example, in a 70 zone. And well, this system beeping up, beep, beep, beep. It can detect that you're doing significantly over the speed limit and there you go, that will automatically send a notification to, for example, in the UK, the DVLA, the Driver Vehicle Licensing Agency, and just say, great, Freddie Dobbs was speeding doing 85 miles an hour last Tuesday on the M25, ping him over a speeding ticket and three points on his license. It's a very easy step to get to that level now. Very, very easy. So I'll be interested to see how that progresses because we're in interesting times now, and it's also uh, an interesting point with, if this does progress, you know, are we losing that, uh, necessity is the wrong word, are we losing the appeal of these faster and faster and ever more powerful vehicles? You know, what's the point of having a Ferrari or a 230 horsepower BMW S1000R if, these systems that have now come in on every single vehicle will stop you from going anything over the speed limit at all. What's the point of having a, a motorbike that can do 190 miles an hour if 
delimiter or the, the warning system will stop you at 70. Cannot wait to see what happens with that. Okay, have a listen to this, because I was reading on the plane when I was coming over last night. Let me just get this article up. Okay. I always download onto my Readly app two bike magazines to pass the time, and they are almost always Bike Magazine and Ride Magazine. And we've got a couple of interesting things. Um, first one is the Harley. I think it's called the Harley Del Mar. And this is Harley Davidson's second electric bike. I always get confused if it's going to be branded as Harley Davidson or Live Wire Del Mar, but Harley Davidson Del Mar. This is, of course, an all-electric bike. It, it looks okay. It looks a bit like a, a tracker-style bike. The range, from what I can see, is around about 100 to maybe 100, 110 mile range. It will be 45 kilograms, potentially 45 kilograms lighter than the out or, or than the Harley Davidson live wire. But still, it's that range, 28,000 pounds, 28,000 pounds. I'm just having a look at that. So there's no information. Ah, there's no information yet. I'm just going through Bike Magazine now. There's no information yet on what uh, that will equate to in proper British money. But going by Harley Davidson's current US UK pricing, we reckon oh, it's a big drop. That could be around fourteen to fifteen thousand pounds. So that is a huge difference from the twenty-eight thousand pounds that the Livewire was. So that that is hugely impressive. So there's no information yet what it equates to. Um, According to Harley, the Del Mar's power will be around 80 horsepower with an urban range of 100 miles and a weight of 200 kilos. Right, okay. Well, the pricing has come down astronomically. We are now getting very, very close to, to normal in, internal combustion engine prices. And at 80 horsepower, I would say that's a fairly sensible amount of horsepower. You're not far off. It's probably only it's probably only about 4k more than you would expect to pay for a similarly priced petrol motorbike. Now the problem is with this. The problem is I read a second article after this from the owner of Zero Motorcycles where he was saying he he's he's unsure why electric motorcycles haven't started taking off in earnest. These have been around now, Zero Motorcycles, I'm sure, for about 10 years or so. And I think Zero Motorcycles fully expected the likes of Triumph, BMW, Ducati, all of the other manufacturers to by now in 2022 have jumped on the ship, at least have started getting the feelers out there. But it doesn't feel like anything really massive has changed within the bike industry within the past 10 years on, uh, with regards to electrification. You know, for cars, things are changing very quickly. I think I saw something last month that 10% of all car registrations last month were electric. Very different with motorbikes. I mean, you can look at some stats and some stats will tell you, look, 
you know, motorcycle electric registrations are going up and up quickly now in the UK. That may be true, but the reality of that is that probably 95% of all electric motorcycle registrations in the UK come from 125cc equivalent or below. The city bikes, that this is not coming from the big motorcycles, because if you look at a range, and this is, bear in mind, Harley-Davidson's brand new electric bike. It's the Del Mar. They've had a lot of experience now with the live wire. They've had some time to perfect it, but still, still the range is a hundred miles. So you can have a 14 or 15,000 pound bike with, with brilliant suspension, amazing handling, loads of power, but if the range is only 100 miles, and let's say if you're pushing it, because that's the urban range, and I know after having a lot of experience on the live wire, urban range is where these bikes make sense, not only from a range point of view, but also from the longevity of each charge. You're going to get more miles riding in the city than you will out on the open roads in the countryside. So let's say that 100 miles is going to drop in reality, my guess, to 80 miles. And if you are going out for, I mean, touring's got to be out of the question still, but if you're going out on a nice day's ride, it could easily be 160 miles. The problem is if you have an 80 mile range, you're going to start desperately looking for your next place to fill up or to charge up from probably from about 40 or 50 miles or so. That means you only have about 40 miles of stress-free riding before you have to start looking for a charging station. And while the charging stations in the UK, they are improving all the time, but oh, we're still a very long way off. You still got the problems with how long it could take to charge. And this is the problem. For motorbikes it's the range length on a car you can get a 350 mile range now and that makes it an acceptable proposition but a hundred mile range on a motorbike for me in my mind it doesn't make it a realistic proposition for anything other than city riding and if it's city riding then you don't need the performance you don't need the handling you don't really need any kind of dynamism you're using it purely as a city bike to get you from A to B and pay, and paying 15,000 pounds for what is in essence a commuter bike that you're rarely going to get above 40 or 50 miles an hour and you don't really need the handling for oh, I still I'm I'm on the fence if there's if there's a place for that at the moment. I really think somehow the the range it must it must get to 250 miles on a bike for it to be relevant or charging has to get down to 10 minutes charging or the network of electric charging points has to get so much better that you don't mind stopping but we're probably a decade away from that, even in the UK, and I would say the UK is actually getting pretty good for that. Right, I'll move on. Let me know your thoughts on that. Um, I, want, I want this to kick off, electric bikes and stuff, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's pushed on range-wise. This is the problem for me. Range-wise, it seems to have stuck at 100 miles range. Needs to push on, has to push on from that. Okay, JB from Scotland, I'm moving on. I've got, in fact, let me just check this. I want to make sure I've covered 
all the points I want to before. Oh, there's one more, but I want to get to JB. I've got, I've got an Australian kickback at you for a, a top 10 bikes for 44K or less. So I've got something to counter for you from Australia. I'm going to read that in a second because I've got a couple of interesting bikes there. And I've got one bike I'm, I'm furious at myself for not including. I couldn't believe I've missed it out. We've got a really interesting mix here. I'm going to get to that. That will be the bit that I, I wrap up the podcast with, but I want to do one more bit uh, because this kind of carries on from the electrif electrification of bikes. And this is from, again, me reading through Bike Magazine on the plane yesterday. Uh, and it carries on from this uh, electric bike theme, kind of. And that is MPG or motorbikes. It's not really getting any better at all. Have a listen to this because at the back of Bike Magazine, they always include all of the new bike models and they give them a, a mark rating out of 10. They, they give a, a brief update or a brief overview on what they think the bike's about. Do they think it's good? How much is it? Uh, things like that. And they also include the power, the top speed, and the MPG. But things in the biking world, they're not really improving MPG-wise either, because if I look through this, I'm just going to choose a random page, the first one, and this has got a whole load of, because it's in alphabetical order, Aprilias, uh, BMWs, CCMs, and also a Fantic. But have a listen to the MPG. And I'm just going to read out a few of them in totally random order. 45 MPG for the RSV4 factory. We've got the R18 BMW 51 MPG. We've got the R1250 GS 44 MPG average. We've got, uh, we've got, if we look at a smaller engine, the G310 BMW, that's 84 MPG. Now that's very good. And I say it's very good, but I'm fairly certain back in the 80s and so, you know, if you look at the smaller engine bikes, they do fairly massive MPG as well. I'll just carry on from a, a couple more. The, let's have a look at the Ducati Street Fighter, 36 MPG. That's fairly low even for car level. Ducati Scrambler Icon. This is the 800cc with 71 horsepower. So that's a fairly unstressed bike, and it's a light bike as well. That's 56 mpg. Look at the Ducati Monster. You're looking at a 937cc bike, and that's 45 mpg. These are not, these surely are no better mpg than the past 10, 20, maybe even 25 years ago. It's not pushing on that much, MPG-wise. It's almost like, or it's almost as if, uh, I don't know, that the bike manufacturers, they, they know that electric engines, electric motors are imminent, so may not be a huge amount of point spending massive amounts of money to try and make these electric, uh, make these petrol engines as economical as possible, because I'm often surprised that at relatively speaking, how uneconomical they are. I mean, look at my Triumph Bonneville, 12 years old, average MPG, 45. Look at my Fiat 500, one year older than the Bonneville, and it does an average MPG of 55. It does 
10 mpg more in a car carrying around all of the weight of the car over relatively a tiny 200 kilogram motorbike that all it has to carry itself around is itself and the only friction it's got are two wheels as opposed to four wheels. I still don't understand why cars are so much more economical than bikes. I, I don't get it at all. Okay, here we go. To Australia, JB and Scotland, get ready for this. This is, right, let me get this up. Here we go. This is all the way from, 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 the, uh, from Australia. Right, here we go. Hey mate, JB piqued my interest this morning when I listened to your podcast on the way to work. That and the shout out Ari the Judge. The rules. This is, remember this, minimum of 10 bikes, £44,000 maximum. No one bike can be more than £15,000. One bike from each. Classic cruiser, sports naked, sports tourer, adventure bike. No bike built after 2015. No easy task, and I'm quoting here. No easy task. Some of the bikes on my list I like, but I must admit, uh, as the cost of used bikes in Australia is so much higher, some of my picks were out of necessity to try and stay within budget. Right, here we go. Sports Tour. Listen to this. This is the 10 bikes for within £44,000 sterling equivalent over in Australia. This is what you get. Sports Tourer, we've got the 1995 Honda ST1100, and that's 3,000 Australian dollars. Honda ST1100. Next up, I love this. This is a, a popular one. I've spoken about this before in my podcast episodes. This is a bike that's you can still get for peanuts. Honda CBR1100 Super Blackbird. That's £3,850. I often talk about that. That is one of the original just beast sports tourers. That's a 1997 model, 1,100cc bike. I think you can get them in the UK for around about £2,000. If you're looking for uh, a real event of a bike at rock bottom prices, cannot get lower. Go and check that out. Next up, 2005 MV Augusta Brutale. 3,000 Australian dollars. That's one that I'd be pretty close to putting in my list. And that is another bike I've discussed. That's hugely underrated. To get all that Italian performance and style, this is 3,000 Aussie dollars. You know, you could probably get it for maybe 2,000 pounds sterling or something like that. Great value. And next up, I don't know how I missed this. How did I miss this bike off my list? Suzuki. Bandit 1200. This is, in my mind, as close a thing to a surefire future classic. I mean, it's a classic now, but surely the values will start going up quickly for these. In Australia, to get one of these, you need 3,400 Australian dollars. 
Let me save you some time because this is a bike that I've personally wanted for a while. I've actually got one up here before I started the podcast episode because I want to share this with you. I'll put a link to this in the written description because I think someone should grab this. There is currently on Auto Trader a 1999 Suzuki Bandit in British Racing Green for £2,000. It's got 37,000 miles on the clock and have a listen to this. This is exactly the kind of seller that you want to buy from. Good runner and low mileage for the year of manufacture. Uh, from the year of manufacture. Serviced regularly, new set of tires, good condition and garaged. Selling due to health condition. That's the key. Full service history, next MOT due in August 2022. Uh, green, two owners. Selling due to, to health condition. You want to buy a bike, ideally, from someone who never planned to sell it, someone who doesn't really want to have to sell it. And it's got a full service history on a 23-year-old bike with only two owners in arguably the best colour in British racing green. Oh, oh Shannon, that is, I mean, yes, I found the, the British racing green colour, but Shannon, that's a good shot. I don't know how I missed that one. Suzuki Bandit 1200, grab it. This one, this one will not stay around for any more than a week. I'm 100% certain I would put my money on it. The fact that it's a private seller as well, that's where you get the bargains. Bikes like this are not that common. And to be at such a reasonable price, 2,000 pounds, oh, someone go and grab that. Okay, carrying on with the list. Suzuki V-Strom 1100. Yeah, I know these. <coughs> this is a 2006 model. You can get one for under 5,000 Aussie dollars. They're not lookers of bikes, but that will be an extremely good workhorse. Next one is one I really like though. Number six, Cruiser. That's a 1997 Yamaha uh, XV1100 Virago. This is the really Nice looking, often underappreciated, big Yamaha Cruiser from the mid 90s. It's quite a unique style with that engine, but you know, you can pick these up for two and a half thousand pounds, something like that. It's a lot, a lot of bike for the money. And the next one I want to get up, I'm actually going to get a, uh, I'm going to put this onto Auto Trader to find one of these because this is a Suzuki Boulevard M90. And I'm gonna be completely honest, I need to actually check this just to make sure it's the one I'm thinking of. I think this is the gigantic, gigantic cruiser Suzuki. Let's see if I can find it. Okay, I'll clear that and I'll do a keyword search. Boulevard. Let's have a look what comes up. Hmm. Possibly none there. Let's have a look here. So Suzuki M90. Oh, it is. And that's a good shout. These are so rare. That's with the really unique looking front fairing. And that is a 1500cc bike. And you can get that for seven and a half thousand Australian dollars. In fact, I think that's the VZ1500. I want to see if I can tell you the price of this in the UK because this, this is going to be a great buy if you're looking for something. If you're looking for a summer cruiser, this will be, I'm almost certain of it, I don't know, but I'm almost certain it will be underappreciated. Suzuki, but they don't have any. There isn't one available on 
auto trader. I wonder if they even, I wonder if they even sold those in the UK. Maybe only, only imports. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to move on because they're now three of the same make of motorbikes in a row. All of them victories. The first one, Victory Crossroads Cruiser at eighteen thousand Australian dollars. The second, the Victory Hammer. This is where all the money's going. The second is the Victory Hammer. That's 15,000. Okay, so I'm going to have to pick one of these. Take my pick from either the Victory Crossroads, the Victory Hammer, or the Victory Octane. Okay, great. Shannon, that is a great list. And I want to actually lead on to here for the final two minutes because these victories, I've touched upon them before, but they make such a tantalizing proposition because in essence, a lot of the parts, and, and I think also the, the frames of these, are, are Indians. They were owned by Polaris, the same company who, who now, of course, own and look after Indian. But they dropped the, the victory name. I think just they weren't making any money. So I think they stopped making them a few years ago. But what it means is that there are some incredible bargains to be had. If I look here in the UK, for example, on Autotrader, all I've typed in is victory, nothing else. And there are 29 bikes that come up. The cheapest one of these is £6,799. And it's a 2008 model. And it's a stunningly good looking V-twin cruiser with really unique wheels. I don't think any other bike manufacturer does styling like it. It's very distinctive even, even from Harley Davidson and certainly from Indian. Lovely looking bike, superb quality, 88 horsepower. So these are powerful beasts, 27,000 miles on the clock. And for a 1600cc engine to come in at 6,799 pounds in such pristine condition from a dealership, I think these are superb buys. Let me just see if I can find one more interesting proposition from a private seller. Okay. Oh, there are some good choices. Victory Vegas, I'll go with this because I don't think I've mentioned this before. You can get a 2013 model. Victory Vegas, private seller, all in black just a single seat with a luggage rack on the rear, just 10,000 miles on the clock for a 1,731 cc bike. And that is just 7,795 pounds. And this owner has owned it for five and a half years. Five and a half years, it's MOT'd for another year, handles really well for a cruiser, has been faultless, Vance and Heinz exhaust, in amazing condition, comes with a raft of extras. And all of that for under 8,000 pounds for a gigantic engine. We're not talking 11 or 1200 cc engines here, huge engines on these bikes. Amazing, go and check out Victory if you are interested in, in a cruiser because these are really, really good money at the moment. Shannon, that is, that's a good top 10. And that, I think, well, that will push JB to the limit with his. I almost can't call it which is the better choice. Right, I'll wrap it up there. Perfect timing. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. Have an amazing week all, and I'll speak to you.